Here we are. No, I trust this is going to be a blessing from you as we look into God's Word. We've been, we've, we've been in a series through the book of Ephesians. We're headed to chapter 6. We're just taking our time getting there. We're going to focus down, slow down in chapter 6 in this series focusing on spiritual warfare. How do we stand strong against the enemy? And yet... We find Ephesians chapter 6 actually comes at the end of a book that has much foundation. Much of the rest of the book, I'm convinced now, and I hadn't seen this in years past, but I'm convinced that most of the rest of the book is foundational to our standing strong in Ephesians chapter 6. So we've been working through those chapters, and today we've arrived at chapters 4 and 5. But before we get into chapters 4 and 5, I want you to think with me for a moment. Imagine, if you will, that you had a spare room in your house. It was one of those spare rooms at the one end of the house that somebody had set up and, and it has an outside entrance to it as well. There's, a, there's an in-suite bath off of it. This would be a perfect room if you were to rent out, maybe a college kid or something, a perfect room to rent. And so you do. You bring in a tenant. It seems to be going okay at first. It's nice to have the extra cash. But sometimes he's a little noisy. Yeah, that happens. Now then you notice you've got some pests. You've got ants. And the ants are coming under the wall, it seems like, from where the guest room is, and now they're invading into the rest of the house. Not only that, but now and again, it's kind of a, kind of a funky smell. What is that? Well, you figure, well, this is kind of what you have to put up with if you want to have a renter, if you want to get a little extra money from renting that room. And, and then one day you notice some stuff's kind of left out of place in the kitchen. There's food missing from the refrigerator. You investigate and you find that the lock on the door between your home and the room to rent has been broken. Your tenant has been, your renter has been making himself far more at home than you realized. Well, he's away at the moment and so you figure, well, the lock's broken anyway. I might as well open up the door and see what's going on in there. And you open the door, and you're not sure what you're looking at. But as you compare some pictures online, you're pretty sure that there's a meth lab now in your guest room. What are you going to do? Well, you're, you're a little afraid to confront the guy now. I mean, what's he going to do if he's caught? And what might he do to you? Or, or maybe he's going to say that's, that's, that's yours and not his. Who can you tell? What are your friends going to think? You were stupid enough to let this guy and his meth lab come into your home. So you're stuck. But you wish you'd never given him opportunity. You'd never allowed him in. Well, sometimes we don't actually invite an evil tenant in, the renter from hell, if you will. Sometimes they sneak in on their own through some opening that has been provided. A man named Davis Wallum in... Uh, up in the north side of Seattle, around Green Lake, he has this house. You see there's downstairs, there's an upstairs. There's also a small attic. And in this house, he was hearing some noises, some rustling around one day up in the attic. I don't know, maybe there's a possum, maybe a raccoon up there. Who knows? But then, when he was downstairs, he heard somebody moving around in his upstairs office room. Well, he's going to go upstairs and investigate. He goes upstairs, and the door to his office is locked. So there he is knocking on the door of his own office, true story, and this woman opens the door. And he says, who the heck are you and what are you doing in my house? And she says, I live here. Jimmy said I could live here. Who's Jimmy? 
There's no idea who Jimmy is, but he, he, he's, he's called 911 already, so he's, he's, he's trying to engage her and keep her there until the police arrive, but she slips away, and the police only arrive like 20, 25 minutes later. So we never did find out who Jimmy is, but somebody has said she could be there in his attic. She'd been living there for three days. There was an elderly woman a couple years ago up in Yelm, just up north in the Puyallup area. And uh, she had a fairly new furnace in her home, and yet she, had, she called the furnace repairman to come out because her home was cold. It wasn't keeping her warm. And so the repairman comes out, and he says, yes, I found your problem. It's going to cost about, five, it cost about $500 to fix it. Somebody had cut into her ducting underneath the house in her crawl space so that they diverted hot air from the furnace into the crawl space to warm, warm the crawl space. Why would they do that? Well, because there was a sleeping mat down there. There were empty liquor bottles down there. There were other things scattered about. Somebody had been living in her crawl space. We don't know how long. She said, well, I found my back door unlatched a couple, or not my back door, my back gate unlatched a couple times. I didn't really know why, what that was about. And um, then she said, now and again, there was this sort of a smell of a strange funky smell coming from somewhere wafting into the house. I didn't know what it was, but it, I don't know what marijuana smells like, but it, it was a lot worse than cigarettes. Yeah. A scary, unwelcome tenant. That's what Dr. Merrill Unger described spiritual warfare as. A scary, unwelcome tenant. Now, Unger of Unger Bible's Dictionary, um, Unger's Bible Handbook, Dallas Theological Seminary, he's no raving Pentecostal, but he described Spiritual warfare this way, the devil enters as a squatter, not as an owner, nor as a guest, or as one who has a right to be there. He comes as an intruder and as an invader and an enemy. But come in he does if the door is left open, if an opportunity is provided by serious and protracted sin. Do you hear voices in the attic of your head? Do you notice things out of place in your life? Things don't, aren't quite what they ought to be. Maybe there's an aroma about you that's a little off. The enemy seeks entrance through opportunity into our lives. We might spend our time debating on whether, whether spiritual darkness can possess Christians, but possession is not the point. The issue is not about who owns the house. The issue is about the renter or squatter does not possess it, but... If the landlord does not assert their authority and rights and throw the bum out, we wouldn't be surprised to see this renter slowly move into more and more of the home. It might even be that he bullies you and says, if you call the authorities, I'll tell them that meth lab's yours, not mine. I'll, I'll, I'll tell them other stuff I know about you. Maybe you didn't invite the tenant in. Maybe like me, you just left the garage door open. You were a little careless. Maybe you left a crawl space unsecured and somebody has moved in, has settled in. You gave an opportunity. You left an opening. That's what Ephesians 4 and 5 are warning us about. 
Now we understand these sections in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 and a little bit into chapter 6. We understand these as very practical application. They're application that are built off of the first half. So you have, you have positional truth, standing, doctrine in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then you have practical application in the rest of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6. But I think there's more to it than that. We've seen that all of Ephesians on the way through, from the authority, our identity and who we are and the authority that is in Christ Jesus, not in ourselves, but in Christ in chapter 1. We've seen chapter 2 as the, the answering of the enemy's accusations of guilt against us. That no matter what he drags up, it may be true, but it is forgiven. And that's our answer. That in fact, the enemy, what, he's done, or what God has done in the church in confronting the enemy is he has pressed the gospel, not merely to his people Israel now, but across all nations. There is no place or nobody out of reach of God's gospel on this planet. So what used to be limited to a national people in terms of these are God's people and then there's the rest of the world that can learn something of God from them. Now, God is pressing out his gospel chapters 1, 2, and 3, and the way he does that, as we leaned forward towards chapter 4 and 5, I suggested you are light in the midst of darkness in those very practical applicational things that are talked about in chapters 4 and 5. But now if we come at it from the other side, we're warned within chapters 4 and 5 something else. These are also the very same practical areas in which we must not give the devil an opportunity. We're going we're gonna to focus this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to start actually in chapters, or in verses 25 to 32. You'll find that in your, in your Bible, if you're using the church Bible on page, on page 978. If you're using your own Bible, I don't know what page number it's on. If you were using my Bible, it would be on page 1440. So you can see that could get confusing. But if you use the church Bible just to find it quicker, Page 978. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to begin at verse 25. Let me just point out the verses ahead of that. The opening of chapter 4 echoes something in chapter 3 that we have an individual responsibility. There is one Lord, one God and Father of us all, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one hope to which we are all called, but we have been given individual grace. So there's individual responsibility within this shared church. Not only that, but this church, the body, the body of Christ is built up, is strengthened by that which every joint supplies when each part does its part, chapter 4, verse 16. So there's an individual responsibility that we talk about spiritual warfare. This is not a matter for you individually and privately. This is something that impacts all of us and together. We fight this battle together or we lose this battle together. It impacts all of us. So there's individual responsibility that we have. We have individual grace and individual responsibility. But I want to get into these very practical matters, and I want you to see them both in terms of relationship. This is not merely about you. It's, it's, it's a matter of body, that these things that we'll do, whether we give opportunity or not, they will impact others around us. We're related to one another. I want you to look at that, and I also want you to look for a spiritual dynamic in these very practical matters. As I read from chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, he says, because we are new in Christ, we have put off the old, we have put on the new man in Jesus. In verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 
Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. That and there is not only joining that to the anger part because the and actually isn't in the original language. So it's, it's another statement that I think gathers up all of these. I'll talk about more, more about that in a moment. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's chapter 1 truth. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, these relate to one another, how we live in these, and there's a spiritual aspect. These are practical application with spiritual implication. Okay. A central command in this paragraph and a few others with it actually describe the bigger picture. Verse 27 said, give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give an opening. Don't give ground. Don't give opportunity. Similar overarching commands describe all of these applications. One of those in verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Also in chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit instead to make no room for the enemy and to not be under his influences. Be under the influence of the spirit rather than of the enemy. Don't give opportunity to the, to the devil so that you would grieve the spirit. Instead, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed. I think James 4, 7, as I shared with the kids, combines these ideas together when James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'm not strong enough in myself, but when I hide in my Savior... And when I stand on his authority, in his forgiveness, and submit to his word and will for me, that would have resisted the enemy in the garden, wouldn't it? would it not? If Adam and Eve had simply submitted to God instead of following the enemy's lie. That's what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4 when he resists the enemy's temptations. What? He submits himself to God and to God's word. That's what you say, but this is what God has said, and I I'm standing on what God has said. Submit to God, resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. He has no ground to stay, no claim to stay. Those who work in deliverance ministry will say sometimes a demon will refuse to leave, will refuse to release their hold on somebody because they have been, they have been given ground. They have been given access. They've been given reason and right to stay. When we were working with a woman in India, she had this, she had a, um, a string band on her wrist. I didn't realize what it was at first, but it came out as we were praying for her that this was a token. This was something that she had been given at the Hindu temple. This was a, a ownership. This was her, her an, an article of devotion that indicated that she was loyal to this particular deity, divinity, spirit. And so in the midst of, of praying for her, we, we, we urged her, you need to remove that. That is your next step in faith. You want Jesus to deliver you, then you need to cut that bond with this spirit who is oppressing you. And she did, and all of a sudden she was free. That now she could follow the pastor in 
proclaiming and, and confessing faith in Jesus and all who he was, all that he had done for her, one item after another, she could go through it and she could, she could agree with that. She could state that for herself when before she was not able to say the words, Jesus is Lord. She couldn't say them and now she could because the ground of the enemy had been removed. The opportunity, the hold of the enemy had been removed. We give opening an opportunity within our lives and we are giving permission for the enemy to tempt you. You dabble in sin a little bit. Guess what happens? All of a sudden you are tempted and you said, God, what happened? You told me that, 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 that in, the, in, in any temptation you would provide a way of escape and yet I am way over my head in this temptation. That's because you invited it in when you dabbled there. And you said to the enemy, go ahead. Come on, let's play. And he did. That's what's going on here. That's what is going on when he says, do not give the devil that access. Do not give him that opportunity. Let's look at some specific ways in which we can do that. Well, before I do, let me give you a quote from Carl Payne, Spiritual Warfare. One of the books that we've provided, there are still some copies of those Spiritual Warfare books in that information stand in the foyer if you'd like to do some additional reading on this wonderful holiday weekend. Spiritual warfare, he describes what it is to give ground or opportunity to the enemy or demonic powers. Ground or opportunity in Ephesians 4.27 is essentially permission to control a space or territory in a Christian's life. Unconfessed sin potentially provides the devil and his demons with a handhold or a foothold or opportunity to exploit a Christian. Habitual sin allows a handhold or a small crack to become a crater. Given time, a small handhold or foothold can become large enough to put your hand or foot upon. A solid ledge can eventually turn into a small cave where you could lay out a sleeping bag. A small cave can be opened up and worked out and pressed into until it's a quite sizable room in which to live. Now, you may give opportunity. And fortunately, as there are not enough thieves to go around in my neighborhood, there are not enough demons to go around either. They are limited. And so you might give opportunity and not be taken advantage of. Praise be to God. But don't leave the door open. Don't give the opportunity and you won't be taken advantage of. These everyday realities are places in which we submit to God or give opportunity to the enemy. These are the ways in which we sublet a room in our house from which the enemy might seek to destroy us. It's the unlocked garage by which the enemy can steal and vandalize. It's the opening in the, in the attic whereby the enemy takes residence in our own heads. In chapter 4, verse 25, first we read, put away falsehoods. Let each one of you speak truth to one another. This, this is not merely just about not lying, not telling lies, tell the truth. It's more than that. Falsehoods here is more the idea of a deceptive front, a facade, a not being genuine or real. It's like, oh, everything is okay. I'm, I'm not, no, nothing wrong with me. It's all good. <laughs> Got it all together here. See, look how nicely my face is washed and my shirt is pressed. Yeah. It's creases. Yeah. Okay. We're all, it's all good here. Maybe not. Maybe there's turmoil, struggle going on on the inside, but we don't want to be real. We appear different than we really are. Denying vulnerability gives the enemy a secret hidden place to hold on to you. It separates you from other people who are real, who also struggle, fail, get discouraged. Our, our love for social media doesn't help here. Because on social media, we're not 
real. It's more like reality media, like as, as real as reality TV is. It's something about reality, but not quite. It's not all there, and, and, and there's not the empathy there. There is not the, uh, you know, you don't, you, you post things out there knowing that everybody's going to read, and what are they going to think about what they read? And you post with that in mind. It's not a trusted confidant of one or two people that you can genuinely be real with. Now and again, somebody is very real, and they will spew something out on Facebook for the whole Facebook, for the whole digital world to, to witness. And it's like, ooh, that was a little uncomfortable, right? You're not sure how to respond. You'd like to come alongside them, but can you do that in front of the whole digital world? Can you really unpack what they have said there? You can say something, but... To be real, we need to be with one another. You need to see my eyes and I need to see yours. We need to be able to put an arm on somebody's shoulder and pray with them there. We need to be able to confide in one another without the rest of the world needing to know. Put aside falsehoods falsehoods, and be real with one another. When you're concerned for someone else, you miss them, don't ask me about them, where they've been, what's going on with them. Give them a call. Go see them. Find out. Concern for somebody, get close. Be safe. Find out what's really going on. Be that brother or sister that we can be real with. That a person can tell you about temptations that are troubling, you, troubling them. It's not going to freak you out. You will help. You will pray with them and for them. Verse 28, there's an admonition not to steal. Don't take, instead give. To steal is essentially self-centered. It's things for me rather than other-centered giving. The enemy comes to rob and to steal. God rather gives that which we don't deserve. Stealing is taking. Giving is for others. How do Christians steal where we could give? Well, there's the maybe even by now overused example of tipping where, where part of the server's actual wage, recognized wage, wage comes from those who were served at the tables. Do we give that wage happily, generously, or do we withhold it for ourselves? Taxes is another example. Often used, maybe it's not such a big deal for you. Maybe you don't have a lot of unreported unreport, cash income that you can underreport anyway, so you're just stuck paying those taxes. But sometimes, what about lost and found? Now, we have a, a lost and found here at the church. I browse it on occasion. You never know what you'll find there. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? Well, after a while, we will not keep your stuff in the lost and found forever. Just, just saying. Go take a look. But one time, years ago, long, long, long time ago, another lifetime really, folks, I was at a Blazers game. It was one of the opening games, and they were giving away baseball caps, blazer caps, to the first so many people that came. I didn't get a cap. Oh, I wanted a cap. I didn't get a cap. Oh, too bad. Well, the game was over. I think they won. I don't know. But when I was leaving, we were kind of slower than others. Maybe we were coming from further up. I, I don't exactly remember. But on our way out, going through one of the rows, nobody else around, people have cleared out, and there's this cap left on one of the seats. And I thought, yes, God gave me a blazer cap. Look at that. 
And they were given away. Somebody must have got one and they came in. They obviously didn't want it because they left it there and it was for me. And so I took it. I was so happy I had my blazer cap. Now maybe three minutes later, some little 10-year-old child goes running back in to check the seat where he was because he forgot his cap and Bob stole it. That's simply taking what isn't mine, trusting that it really won't matter to anybody else when I have no idea how it might matter to somebody else. Instead of taking, being a giver. Maybe it relates to the area of serving. You've heard of a serving need, but another voice told you that "Ah, that's for somebody else. You've done enough. Relax a little. Take care of yourself. Some of our folks in the church have have just committed themselves to helping minister to one child in our body with special needs. That's giving, not taking. Offering and serving opportunities in our church, they're not because the church needs money or the church needs stuff done. No, it's we need to give of ourselves. That's how we deny the enemy this self-centered entrance into our lives. We need to give of ourselves for others. The devil wants to make you selfish. Another generation used to say that idle hands are the devil's workshop. Paul in Romans 6 says it this way. If we, we need to present ourselves, we need to intentionally present ourselves, our bodies, as instruments of righteousness to God, or we will find ourselves presenting ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. As, Bob, as the theologian Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. Yes, you do. You got to serve somebody. All right, that's enough. (laughs) Who do we serve in the words that we say? Verse 29 talks about corrupt words, a word that is referred to, it's the same word that refers to rotten fruit, corrupt fruit. Fruit that left in the box would spread its rot to the pieces that are around it. Corrupt words that will corrupt others. Satan will use obscene language, abusive words, gossip to turn others' minds toward evil in ways that grieve his spirit. This is the enemy using you to spread his vile to others. The evil thoughts and accusations he uses against us inside our own head, what if he then takes those and and spreads them from us like a virus they spread from us to others also? These words get into our head and and to compensate because of the way that I'm feeling about me and the things that are echoing around in my head about me. What do I do? I I, I start to talk about somebody else and I point out their faults and their weaknesses because in doing that and seeing that, I'll feel better about myself. See, I'm really not so bad. Look at. And now I've just become the enemy's messenger in the lives of somebody else. This grieves the spirit because we have been redeemed to be God's messengers of grace, not the enemy's messengers of evil. A very significant opportunity of giving ground to the enemy, one which often leads into more serious harassment, bullying by the enemy and his minions, is anger, wrath, malice, bitterness, unforgiveness harbored toward others, as described in verse 30. Perhaps this is because the very basis of our own standing against the condemnation of the enemy, the very basis of our own standing is on the basis of God's forgiveness of me in Christ. And if I don't practice that, if I withhold forgiveness toward somebody else, that will redefine in my own heart, it will redefine in my own head how I understand God's forgiveness of me. 
as if I deserve it, but they don't. And then the enemy will remind me that I don't deserve it. And then where will I stand? You see how this spirals. No, no, we're, we're told to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You said, but they haven't asked for my forgiveness yet. Do they need to ask for you to forgive? Jesus, when he's dying on the cross, they are not asking him to forgive them. They are mocking him. And he says, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they do. Jesus lets go of any bitterness he could rightly hold against them. He forgives. Now that does not restore the relationship. That is not reconciliation. That does not mean everything's fine between Jesus and humanity at that moment. No. And you may forgive somebody and yet there is still distance and separation between you. You are not reconciled because reconciliation, the restoration of the relationship, requires not only you to let go of the wrong that was committed, but for both of you to agree about the wrong that was committed. So, but you don't have to have that reconciliation, that restored relationship, confession on their part, for you to forgive the debt on your side instead of harboring it, nursing it, cuddling it like a little pet that you cherish until it grows up. You know, maybe we named our cat the wrong name. We call her Buzzy Bite because she'll buzz, 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 and then she bites. Maybe she's bitterness. Maybe she's unforgiveness. We pet it a while and all of a sudden, chomp, it will get us. Okay? That's what'll happen. One of the most, in chapter five, well, let's move on to chapter five. We're to imitate God. As his children, we're to be imitators of God. This leads into one of the most serious, I think, in our society today, areas in which the enemy gets inroads into our lives. I'll start reading in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Those things don't fit us as Christians. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk or crude jokes. Those are out of place. They're out of bounds. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you, have, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetousness, there's an idolater. So, so immorality is considered coveting, is considered idolatry. Why is that? Well, immorality, desiring somebody else to be used for myself, she may be fine, but she's not mine. You see how it's coveting? It's desiring for yourself somebody else who is not for you. That's coveting. Idolatry that this one will satisfy me. This one will fulfill me when only God can satisfy. Only God fulfills the emptiness in our heart that we try to self-medicate in all kinds of other ways. But chief in our society today is this area of sexual immorality. We are bombarded by it. We, we, it, it, is, it saturates our society. On the internet, in the news, TV, movies, music, all over. We are sucked in by a constant barrage of deception and temptation and redefinition so that we ourselves are confused about what is right and what is wrong. Satan has taken something beautiful. The joyful giving of one to another within the trusted confines of a covenantal marriage. And he's twisted that into self-serving, driven by lust instead of love that never satisfies, 
because it can never fulfill. In a TV, episode, a TV show episode I watched recently is an older episode of a series that's currently going. One of the daughters is caught sneaking into the home at 3 a.m. in the morning. Okay? And, and the parents notice this, and so the mom is talking to the daughter about this. And, and she's telling her the lesson of the moment is you need to honor your father in the, in the things that you do. But she doesn't tell her to honor her father by not doing these kinds of things No. She would honor her father by not being so easily found out. That as long as her father doesn't have to find out, it would be okay because he's not dishonored by her her doing it right in front of him. As long as she can keep it hidden, it's okay. I think, oh, that's not right. Yeah? Don't we kind of treat things the same way? As long as nobody really knows, then dabbling a little bit here or there, a little look here or there, whether it's pornography or self-excitement or whatever it is that is unfaithfulness, as long as nobody knows, it won't really hurt anybody. And the hooks are into my heart. And I will be owned by this thing before I know it. Do not give the devil in opportunity, because sooner or later he will take you up on the offer. Pornography is like a Ouija board in terms of inviting the devil to come and play. It's giving the devil a room to rent. It's letting him sublet my life. It's giving the devil an opportunity. In the midst of that society, we want to be light in the midst of darkness. This got me thinking, too, about other things going on. What do we do in terms of involvement out there? Because the need is great. Just last year, a state government commission made new rules requiring male and female bathrooms, dressing rooms, showers, etc. in public facilities and schools to be open to everyone who identifies with that particular gender. So in junior high, after PE, if one of the junior high boys is now identifying himself as, as a girl, he can go into the girl's shower room instead of the guy's. When I was in junior high, we planned and schemed for ways to come up with something like that. And now, it's been handed to, you know, middle schoolers are are, are dangerously idiotic about themselves at times. I I warn you. So so we, we help them. We do not lay traps right in front of them. What are we supposed to do? Well, petitions are circulating to put this question on the ballot to be decided by voters rather than by, by, by bureaucratic decree, and I support that wholeheartedly. We've had this initiative circulated, very smaller group locations here in the church by interested members. However, we've chosen not to have a focused sign-up for these or other petitions during our Sunday worship. Our worship service is centered on our great God and Savior and the gospel of, of his grace. We believe as a church we must be salt and light in our community as informed and engaged citizens. For the shared good of society as a whole, please get involved in these things in reverence for Christ and for the good of others. We've got to be involved. If you're not sure what to do, call or email me. I'll I'll tell you what I know. Yet in Sunday worship, we're gonna focus on our God and his grace to us in Jesus who died for us. This is not because we're afraid to get involved or we're afraid to offend somebody. We must get involved. And you cannot help but offend somebody. But our decision to not have petitions in the foyer on a Sunday morning, if you've been wondering why we haven't done that, is this. 
in this hour, in this one hour, we will focus on what matters most. As God's word said, the Lord is in his temple. No matter what else is going on in the world, but the Lord is in his temple. Maybe for this one hour, let all the earth, and especially his people, keep silent before him. But in a society that is intentionally and aggressively increasing in ungodliness, the most important thing you and I can do is to submit yourself to God. To resist the enemy's advances in your life by being filled with his spirit. That's move number two. That arises here into chapter 5 at verse 5. 18. Don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. If you are filled with the Spirit, guess what? If the, Spirit is, if the Spirit is filling not only most of the home, but the attic as well, if the Spirit is filling not only the ground floor, but also the crawl space, there is no room or opportunity for the enemy. So be filled with the Spirit. And then he, he, he teases that out, again, in terms of one another, that to be filled with the Spirit is our worship toward one another, and he teases that out in three relationships, in your marriage, in your family, and in the workplace. In your marriage, wives, submit to your own husbands. Ever wonder about that language? Well, whose husband would she submit to? She submits to the one that she is in a covenant relationship with because this whole marriage thing is not merely about husbands and wives. It's about Christ and the church, and we submit ourselves to our one Lord with whom we are in covenant relationship. No other pretenders who would lay some claim of ownership upon us. We do not belong to them. They are not ours. We are not theirs. So also, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see, we, we, we live out his love for us in that marriage relationship. We give ourselves away as he gave himself for us. And in doing so, we taste something of our Savior's love for us in the sacrificially giving of ourselves. We are role-playing. We are living out God's likeness to the world in marriage and in family. Children, obey your parents. That's where children learn to obey God by obeying their parents. How we submit to other authorities tells us something about how we submit to our greatest authority. Parents, raise up your children as God raises his children, nurturing them like he does, training them, disciplining them like he does with graciousness and wisdom. Bosses and employees, it's interesting, he says, with slaves or maybe today workers, Obey your masters, not eye service only, not as men pleasers, not doing it so they'll think you're obeying them. But when they're not around, you're really doing your own thing. That plays into how we, how we follow our Lord. Do we follow our Lord as eye service, as religious God pleasers, and yet on our own, we do what we want? Masters, how do we represent God? Do we, do we like to lord it over people? As Jesus said, or do we consider these people, do we consider staff as, as those that God has made as he made us, those whom he has entrusted to our leadership for him, whom we are accountable to? You see how it plays out in very particular application, but with spiritual implication. How we live in these ways is not simply the right and blessed model of a Christian life. These are the ways that we do not give the enemy an opportunity.
And so I want to close doing something a little bit different. I want us to close in prayer. Not that closing in prayer is different, but I want us to take that list again that's in your bulletin of these areas in which we could give opportunity. In fact, we'll put it up on the screen as well. We'll put up on the screen this list of falsehood and pretending, of taking what's not yours or keeping what you should give, words that hurt or tear down, anger, forgiveness, sexual immorality, coveting. And, and, and I want us to now pause and quietly in the time of prayer, and I'll lead us, but there'll be some gaps, some pauses for you to do your own quiet business with God. And I want us to take an opportunity to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my mind. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your everlasting way. That's the way the psalmist prayed. Let's, let's join him there. And let's say, God, shine your light in my heart. If there's something here I need to confess so that we can release its hold upon me, God, show me that. We'll confess that, and then we'll together, we'll accept his forgiveness. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we lay ourselves before you. Father, we don't want to hide. Father, things that we are maybe very aware of, we thought we could hide it from you, and yet we cannot. There's no place we can hide from your presence. So, Father, now... We open that back room. We open that hidden place and we say, this is yours too. This corner that I've hidden for myself, this part where I've allowed myself to do what I want to do instead of submitting myself to you. Father, I confess that to you now. Across the room, Lord, we, we just do that business with you now. Anything on this list or things like it, We agree with you that this is sin. Lord, we renounce its hold upon us. We agree with you in confession. This is sin. We know we, we renounce in, in Jesus' name because on the basis of his forgiveness, we renounce its hold upon us. And Father, we ask you instead that you would cleanse us according to your promise that the blood of Jesus Christ would keep on cleansing us from all sin, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Father, do that right here and now. We claim your promise. We thank you for it. And, Father, by your grace, would you strengthen us to Submit ourselves to God and thus resist the enemy. To deny him opportunity by being filled instead with your spirit and yielding ourselves to you. Father, we present ourselves. We present the offering. Lord, we, we place now those opportunities, whether it's the pancake breakfast, whether it's the VBC, whether it's another opportunity of service, or just to say, Lord, here am I. Father, in this, in this offering now, we give from what we have and we give ourselves to you again. In Jesus' name, amen.